passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. We're continuing in our study of 2 Samuel. Today we are in 2 Samuel 17. Last week, after our message in 2 Samuel 16, I talked to a friend after the message, and I just asked him about what he thought about it. He said, oh man, that was a really hard chapter. I mean, it's a lot of tough stuff going on. And I understand what he's saying. He's like, he said, I feel like going home and just reading the New Testament a little bit to get some good news, because it's just so much difficult stuff. And in many ways, he was right. Because in 2 Samuel 16, it was a hard chapter. Because David was getting, let's just say, hammered by God. It had to do with his sin from, with Bathsheba and Uriah. And one of the lessons you can see coming like an umbrella over these chapters is the suffering sin brings is always far worse than any pleasure that sin brought. Isn't that true? The, suffer, the suffering that sin brings always outweighs the pleasure that sin brought. Even this whole section of Absalom trying to overthrow his father, trying to rebel against his father, this is part of the consequence of David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. When we were in 2 Samuel 12, that's what Nathan the prophet told him that someone who was close to him would rise up against him as a result of what he had done. And then in 2 Samuel 16, we saw one thing after the other, where God was at work behind the scenes disciplining David, his child. Remember Shammai? Shammai is when David is running out of Jerusalem, running for his life because his son is hunting his life, and he's leaving with his men, and Shammai gets on the hillside and begins cursing David. We called him the potty mouth of the purpose last week. Cursing David for what he's done, calling him a worthless man, calling him a murderer, and accusing him of undermining and destroying the house of Saul. And we learned last week, well, we know he, David did nothing against Saul. But David was a worthless man. He had slept with another man's wife. He was a murderer. He murdered that woman's husband. So while he was not guilty of the crime Shimei was accusing him of, he was guilty of the actions that he was accused of. And you notice that line last week where David said, maybe God is behind all this. Maybe I need to hear this right now because I deserve that shame for what I have done. And then a little later in chapter 16, more hard stuff. David gets hammered again. Once Absalom goes into Jerusalem, Ahithophel, who's David's former counselor, who's now become Absalom's counselor, advises Absalom to sleep with the ten wives of David that were remaining in the city to take care of the palace. And Absalom jumps at that. Well, that's tough because David's son essentially raped ten of David's wives. That would definitely cause a rift between a father and son. Now, the interesting thing behind all this is God is behind all of this discipline of David, the rebellion of his son, Shammai cursing him, his son essentially raping his, his father's wives. And you say, really, is, is that what it says? We read about this in 2 Samuel 12. 
Thus says the Lord, these are the consequences of David's sin. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That was Absalom. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. That's exactly what happened. Now, last week, David was behind God's, God was behind David's sufferings. The good news is, you came back for another week. Really, I mean, it was sort of depressing last week. But when we get to chapter 17, God's purposes move from disciplining David for what he's done to delivering David and saving him. All of a sudden, in this next chapter, God's grace is seen. And by the way, David doesn't deserve God's grace, does he? He deserves God's discipline. So even though last week was a tough chapter, the part that David doesn't deserve is what's going to happen in this chapter. I titled this message, God's Plans and God's Plans or Man's Plans. Right now in David's life, Men have a plan for him. Absalom's plan, Ahithophel's plan, that is to destroy David, to kill David, to eliminate him. But God's plans are different. God's plans were just to discipline David, not to destroy David. So the question is going to become in this chapter, whose plans are going to prevail? The plans of extremely powerful and wise men or God's plans. Who's going to win out at the end of the day? David, later in his life, looking back on this scenario and other things in his life and how they worked out, he wrote Psalm 127. In Psalm 127, he talks about some people have plans and then God has plans. And there's a difference between those two. And it's really interesting how it works out. This is what David wrote. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early or go, to late, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved while he sleeps. David's point in Psalm 127 is we may have a plan, but if our plans don't line up with God's plans, we could work real hard. We could work real long, but at the end of the day, it'll all amount to nothing because God will frustrate our plans and destroy our plans if they don't line up with what are his plans. So the best thing we can do is find out what God's plans are and then live and make choices in that direction. So we're working with God not opposed to God. And we're going to find today some people who are working in line with God's plans, and God will help them. Some people are working opposed to God's plans for David, and God will destroy them. So I'm going to build this message under this plural noun called plans. We'll look at people's different plans. Remember, as we dive into this, that where we left off, there were two extremely wise counselors, former counselors of David who had switched over to be counselors of Absalom. 
One was Ahithophel. We called him last week the evil genius. Very, very smart. But he was Bathsheba's grandfather. He had a bone to pick with David about what happened between him and Bathsheba. So this is his chance to get even, so he switched teams working against David. The other guy is named Hushai the Archite. He is loyal to David. He is faithful to David. He has gone undercover, deep undercover for David. He's on Absalom's side, but he's actually working for David's team. And before we uh, jump into looking at the differences here of these two men, let's just remind ourselves of the final part of the last chapter, which is the incredible power and wisdom of Ahithophel's words. It was this, now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So Ahithophel was the guy that got the perfect score in his HCTs. He's the guy that never got anything wrong in class. Amazing wisdom and insight into people and personalities. Ahithophel, his first bit of advice was for Absalom to rape his father's wives. We pick up the next chapter with more of his advice about how to finish the coup and take over the kingdom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight, while, and I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike down only the king, and I will bring back to you, I will bring the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. David and his troops, we know, were surprised that day when they found out about Absalom's rebellion. They had to flee the city of Jerusalem. They fled across the Judean wilderness, which we saw last week is actually a desert. They fled 20 miles in haste. They are exhausted. They are weary. They are worn out. And Ahithophel says, now is the time to strike. When David's worn out and weary, strike him now and we'll finish the coup. As I thought about this, the first thing that struck me is the incredible amount of disrespect that Ahithophel has for God's chosen king. Isn't that a contrast to David from 1 Samuel? Remember when David was anointed as king by God, but yet King Saul was still reigning on the throne? King Saul was hunting David. Multiple times David had a chance to take King Saul's life, yet he refused to do it, constantly saying, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And even that one time when King Saul went to go to the bathroom in a cave and David was in the cave and he cut off the corner of his robe. I think that was 1 Samuel 24. And then David was conscience stricken 
that he just cut off a little bit of the corner of King Saul's robe. That's the kind of respect that David had for the man who was God's chosen king for that time. But Ahithophel, by the way, notice, has none of that kind of respect, does he? He's committed to doing away with David. And all of a sudden you start to say to yourself, if David is God's chosen king, don't you think he should have some respect? If David is God's chosen king, don't you think his desire to kill David is working against God's plans, not working for God's plans? As we get into this, we should expect to see God actually sort of thwarting his plans, destroying his plans, because he's not living in line with God's will. Now let's look at what his plans were. Let's break it apart in a couple pieces. First, Ahithophel would lead the ex expedition to kill David. Notice there's a constant refrain here. Let me choose. I will strike. I will lead. I will bring. Ahithophel is going to do everything. But isn't Absalom the new king? Why doesn't he give Absalom any role? Is it because he doesn't trust Absalom's military abilities? Or because he really trusts his own abilities? Why does he downplay them? Ahithophel leading the expedition would avoid that awkward moment at the end where one of the, a father or son had to kill one another. He would also give excuse me, Ahithophel the opportunity to carry out the vengeance he actually wanted. Maybe that's the reason he wants to lead. Another observation. Ahithophel says he would quickly assemble an army that represented all of Israel. Now, this is implied here. It's not explicitly stated. Ahithophel wants to gather an army of 12,000 that very night. In other words, 1,000 from every tribe of Israel so all the nation can be seen as destroying David. That gives you an idea of the size of the rebellion. Ahithophel was confident there was at least a thousand men from every tribe that was within the radius of Jerusalem as part of this rebellion that he could tap on that night to create an army. Scholars estimate that David would have had probably only around 2,000 men with him. So this would have given Ahithophel a five to one advantage over David if he carries out this plan. Next point is it needed to be a surprise attack that night. Ahithophel understood the advantage of surprise. As I said earlier, I don't know what time it was in the day when David realized that Absalom had been crowned king at Hebron and that this coup was taking place. What time it was when he had to all of a sudden realize that he had to escape the city. He had to organize everybody, get out of there, run as fast as they can. They made a 20-mile trek that same day and arrived at night on the fords of the Jordan. That's a lot. He's exhausted. And Ahithophel knows that if he can take advantage of this, that will be his opportunity to win. Another point, it would be a surgical strike to take out David without further bloodshed. Ahithophel said, you only want to kill David. 
You don't want to make a big war. You don't want to try and kill a lot of the other people. Because when you do that, you get a bunch of collateral damage. People tend to get upset. You've been watching the news? Uh, oh yeah, there's some kind of a guy from Hamas who's in a building. So it will drop the whole building and get a whole bunch of other people killed along the way. Now, I'm not here to say whether that's right or wrong. That's not my point. My point is simply that when there's a lot of collateral damage, people tend to get upset. And so Ahithophel is trying to limit the collateral damage as much as possible. Another point. Once David was dead, he figured it would be easy to reunite the nation. Who was the heir? Absalom. He was next in line for the throne. If only David died, you could quickly reunite the nation, and there would be no vengeance held against any of David's men. Interestingly, we know that Ehithophel's advice and words are always right. They're always rise. Everybody trusts him. Everybody believes him. This is the right counsel. And we see this in verse 4. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. The coup is going according to plan. Until we get to the next verse. We start to look at Hushai's plan. Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also. Let us hear what he has to say. Folks, this is the turning point in the rebellion. This is God at work in the background. This is the moment God moves from disciplining David to delivering David. After everybody's heard Ahithophel's plans, you know the reputation for his wisdom. After everybody has already agreed to this is the right plan, all of a sudden, for some random reason, Absalom decides he wants a second opinion. Why does he do that? This is God at work behind the scenes prompting Absalom's thoughts where he wants them to go. Did you realize God can do that? Prompt the thoughts of a king to have them go the direction he wants them to go. It says this in Proverbs. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Now remember earlier in the text, when David heard that Ahithophel had joined the rebellion, he was very concerned. All he could do was pray. He prayed that God would turn the wisdom of Ahithophel into foolishness. And God, at that very moment, began answering the prayer. At the moment he had finished praying that, Hushai just happened to run across David at that moment. And David sent him back in under cover. And here we see that Hushai is going to be given an opportunity to confound Ahithophel's words and confuse Ahithophel's words. An opportunity that wasn't there that God opened by prompting Absalom's brain. And it gets better. 
In verse 6, And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. In other words, let me give you Ahithophel's entire plan and tell me what you think about it. He doesn't have to go hunting for it. Absalom just vomits the whole thing out. So he knows exactly what he has to make look foolish. And he immediately sets out to do that. First of all, Hushai boldly disagreed with, disagreed with Ahithophel. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Well, that made everybody sit up and take notice. Nobody ever disagreed with Ahithophel. But Hushai did. And notice how he did it? He did it like he disagrees and then he softens it. He's just wrong this time. Everybody gets something wrong once in a while. He just happens to be wrong just this once. See how he's using this strategy? And then he imaginatively exaggerated the strength of the opposition. We know David is weary, David is weak, David is surprised, David is exhausted, he's in no condition to fight. But Absalom doesn't know that. Hushai knows David cannot defeat Absalom and Ahithophel on a literal battlefield. So he decides to defeat Absalom on an imaginative virtual battlefield. Notice what he says. Hushai said, Well, you know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. Ahithophel's advice is brilliant. But if you start looking at Hushai's speech, his speech is brilliant. Ahithophel, was all, his plan was all about what he would do. Remember? I will do this. I will do that. Hushai knows that Absalom is a very vain man. Remember fluffy hair guy? He's really into himself, and he does not like playing a role sitting down. So Hushai starts to cultivate his big ego. He says this, You know that your father and his, uh, you know that your father and his mighty men, and that they are enraged. Interestingly, the you here in the Hebrew is in the emphatic tense. In other words, by the way, Absalom, you know things better than Ahithophel knows things. Trying to give him the center of prominence here. And he starts to point out what his father has done. 
your father has defeated other mighty armies that had horses, that had char chariots, that were much larger. His father and his mighty men defeated those armies as mere foot soldiers. Do you really think that you and a quickly gathered army are going to be able to defeat your father and his mighty men who have defeated much larger armies in the past? You know your father. He's not going to be taking any of this sitting down. You know he and his men are angry. They're enraged like a mother bear who's had a cub stolen. Do you think you really want to go after your father tonight when he and his men are so angry? You know, Absalom, your dad is an expert at war. That King Saul hunted him for years and was never, ever, ever able to find him. Do you think that you and your 12,000 men are going to find him sleeping among the troops tonight? Of course not. He's hidden himself away. Hushai played on Absalom's fears and his worst nightmares. You know what will happen, Absalom? As soon as people hear that your father and his men start killing your soldiers, everybody will leave you, Absalom. They'll abandon you. And for a man who likes to be the center of attention, a man who's into his ego and big fluffy hair, that's his absolute worst nightmare. Hushai did not use any facts in his speech. You notice that? He used his imagination. And to build into Absalom's imagination all kinds of fear and to portray his father as a mighty man of war. Now, not only did he discourage Ahithophel's plans, but of course, the best way to do that next is then propose your own plan, which you think is better, and that's what he does. He proposed an alternative plan to gain time. The express purpose of Ahithophel's plan was to strike David that very night. Hushai's plan is trying to give David more time to escape and regroup. And this is what he says. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person, and we shall come upon him in some place where he is found. And we shall light upon him as the dew falls to the ground. And of him and all of his men with him, not one will be left. And if he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city. And we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. Hushai and his alternative plan played into Absalom's ego by insisting that Absalom lead the battle. Absalom, when it comes to the history books, you don't want to have a Heathfell's name in there, do you? You want to make sure it's your name in the history books. You want to make sure this is a big battle. You want to make sure there's lots of parades and your name gets associated with this victory. Not a Heathfell's. He played into Absalom's fears by telling him he needed a much larger army. Remember, 
a 12, army of 12,000 probably already outnumbered David's men five to one. But Hushai says, that's not going to be enough. You need to take time to institute the national draft and bring all of the men of the entire nation into the military to beat your father. He says, from Dan to Beersheba, which by the way, Dan is the northernmost city in Israel, Beersheba is the southernmost. So it's a way of saying the entire nation has to come behind you. And then he pictures it this way. It'll be like dew on the ground falling at night. There'll be no place your father and his men can go to get away from us. But by the way, do you think a national draft would take some time? Oh yeah, it would take a lot of time and give plenty of time for David and his men a chance to regroup. He played into his lust for blood by encouraging him to destroy not just David, but all of David's men. Hushai knows Absalom is a murderer. He's a thug. He's a guy who burns people's fields. Remember when they don't return his phone calls? The idea of a quick surgical strike and getting this whole thing over in one night is not enough blood for a person like Absalom. So, Hushai plays into his ego. We're going to have a big war. We're going to kill not just David, but we're going to kill all of his men. And we're not going to leave anybody left who is in opposition to you. All that will be left is everybody who loves you, agrees with you, and supports you. And you can see Absalom going, I like that. We're going to make it a really big war. So we've seen Ahithophel's plan. And we've seen Absalom's plan. Two different plans. Which way will it go? One plan is in line with God's will. Another plan is opposed to God's will. Let's see what happens. Let's look at God's plan. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. It was God who prompted Absalom's heart to ask for a second opinion. Now, God has confused Absalom's mind and the mind of the men of Israel to choose the inferior plan instead of the better plan. God is behind all this so that David is not destroyed. In case you're wondering about God being behind all this, it says that very clearly in the very next part of the verse. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. God was behind all this to protect David, his king. Now let's pause and look at some application of this. What does this teach us about the way God works in ordinary life. First thing, God has a plan for his chosen king and opposing God's plan is simply foolishness, isn't it? Well, we can see that. Those who have set themselves to destroy David, it's not going to work. God is working against them. But by the way, that's not just true for David, God's chosen king, but isn't that also true for Jesus? God's chosen king today? There are plenty of people who have set themselves against Jesus, 
who are completely opposed to Jesus. But they're not just working on a level playing field. God has his finger on the scales that his son, Jesus Christ, will be king and his name will be honored on the entire earth. So those who are working for Jesus may times feel like they're losing, but ultimately they're not because they are working in line with God's chosen plan for God's chosen king. Another application. I can expect God's help when my plans line up with God's plan. In this chapter, we see God at work behind the scenes. God prompted Absalom to ask for advice when he didn't need it. God confused Absalom's mind and the people's mind. All parts of God's plan to deliver David. Now here's the but I think is interesting. While God is at work behind the scenes, there's also a guy called Hushai in this scene, isn't it? He is a friend of David's who made some very courageous and risky choices. Risking his own life for his friend, he chose to go behind the enemy lines and try and confuse Ahithophel's wide words. He developed a strategy. and He tried to give an alternate plan that would give David time. So you see two things going on. You see God at work behind the scenes, right? But then you also see someone like Hushai, Hushai in life making courageous, risky, and wise choices that are in line with God's plan. And then God working behind the scenes to help and assist it become successful. God was sovereignly working behind to deliver David, but people were also making good, wise, courageous, and risky choices to help David. Too many people fall on one side of the equation here or the other. They say God is large and in charge, so it doesn't matter what I do because he's going to sovereignly work things out. That's true. But because God is large and in charge, we should be involved. We should be making courageous, risky, God-honoring choices that are in line with his plan and that trusting that he will be working behind the scenes to help us. You see how those two things go together? So I must trust what God, I must trust that God is at work behind the scenes plus make good, wise and courageous choices. Another application point. God frequently answers our prayers by simply ordering our lives and steering the desires of someone's heart. As I was thinking about it during the week, David prayed in desperation, and all the answers to the prayers are just really ordinary ordering of things. Hushai happens to come and show up at just the right time for his answer to the prayer. Hushai, we saw earlier, arrives in the city at the last moment before Absalom gets there. And God moved in Absalom's heart to ask for a second opinion. All little behind the things Behind the thing scenes, I can't say that. Behind the scene, <laughs> behind the scene things. Chance encounters of people meeting, 
thoughts coming to people's mind. God is working out answers to his prayer. Now, in the next part of the chapter, we switch to a different part of the city. But it's the same thing. Once again, God at work behind the scenes, but people making good, wise, and everyday courageous choices to honor David as king. And God working behind the scenes to carry things out. Now we're going to look at Zadok and Abiathar's plan. Remember that Zadok and Abiathar are the priests. They are part of the spy network that David set up. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Apparently at this point, Hushai does not know which way, which counsel will be accepted. He doesn't know if his counsel is going to be followed or Ahithophel's counsel is going to be followed. But he does know, he has to tell David to cross the Jordan, get out of town as fast as possible if Ahithophel's counsel is followed. Then Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel, a female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. These two men are the sons of the priests that we just read about. They are also part of the spy network. They are at a well that is approximately 300 yards outside of the city of Jerusalem called Enrogel. There they are waiting, and they haven't worked out that a woman would go to get water at the well. That woman would not just be getting water, but would be carrying a message from their father to them. They would get the message, and they would run and tell David that he had to leave as fast as possible and cross the Jordan. Apparently these guys are members of the uh, Jerusalem track team because they have a long way to go. But here's the problem. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, their cover was blown. Now think what could happen with this. It's not just that these young men will be found out and killed, but their fathers who are the priests will be found out and killed. Hushai's cover will be blown. And worst of all, they would probably attack that very night and get the better side of David. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Barim who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it. And nothing was known of it. You remember from last week that Barim was 1.5 miles outside of Jerusalem. The boys are running. They know the soldiers are behind them. They know their cover is blown. And think of this. They just happen to get to the right house of a friend. They tell, they, they tell the man and the woman they need to be hidden. They send the boys down the well. The wife throws the covering over the well, spreads grain on the covering right before the soldiers arrive. We read this. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. 
they said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. And by daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. I picture the boys, the, boys, the young men in the well, still panting, still haven't caught their breath when those soldiers arrive. And here's what's so interesting. Don't you see God working behind the scenes again? Making sure they got to the right place to get hidden at the right time so they weren't caught? But yet, at the same point, weren't they busy making courageous choices to, be fo to follow their king and to be loyal to their king? Weren't they making courageous choices to risk their very life for David? So we see the same thing going back and forth here. God is at work behind the scenes, carrying out what are his plans and his will. And people are in everyday life who are making courageous choices risking their life to follow what is in line with God's plans, find themselves being supported by God. But people who are working against God find themselves being sort of destroyed by God and pushed down. This reminds me of when we launched our Spencer campus. You wonder, what would this have to do with that? I remember when I was in my office and the idea hit me about Maybe we should become a multi-site church. We had people from Spencer that were coming up here trying to hear the teaching of God's word. And then we talked about it as elders. And over the next few months, God brought unanimity among the elder board that we needed to create another campus. We tried to launch another campus in Spencer. That would be one of our big missions that we felt the Lord had called us to do. And so we knew that we had a mission, which is reaching people with Jesus. We knew we had the idea that maybe we can create another campus. We did our homework. We did a lot of research. We worked hard on that. But I remember very well the elder meeting when we had to come up with the budget for the year we launched the next campus. I think some of you guys know what I'm talking about. And there wasn't enough money. There's not enough money to go from one campus to two campuses, just in a straight budget year. But the thought of the board was, if God has given us a mission, we know what his will is, we're supposed to be reaching people with Jesus, God is going to be faithful to us, we need to make courageous, we need to make risky choices, and we trust that in the background, God will show up and carry the plan through. And folks, that's exactly what happens. Because as the campus got off the ground, people started coming. People started giving. And as our bills went up, the income ran up. God was at work in the background, carrying out his plans. But in the midst of it, his people had to make courageous choices, had to make risky choices, had to make good choices to follow in line with that. And he's behind it to see this for the success. That's the same thing we see going on in this chapter. One final part. Ahithophel's final plan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, 
he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city, set his house in order, and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his fathers. This is the second of four suicides that are in the Bible. And scholars write about this. They say that he was so wise to know that once his advice was not followed and David was not taken out at that time, that David would ultimately win and push down his son and his rebellion. But I also thought about it this way. Ahithophel was a man who had intentionally set himself in opposition to God's chosen king, who had set himself in opposition to God's plans for David, which were to restore David, not to destroy David. And just as God worked in, a, worked in Absalom's mind to all of a sudden want a second opinion, I think he was also at work in Ahithophel's mind to take him out of the picture and remove the opposition to David. Once again, you see God at work in the background protecting his king. Now, I'm not going to say I understand how it all works and that all suicides or God's behind them. And that's not what I'm saying at all. But I just, just see very clearly that God is at work protecting his king, carrying out his plans. Let me just run over the applications here at the end for you. Number one, if my plan lines up with God's plans, I can expect God's help. If my plans oppose God's plan, my life will be spent in vain. That's Psalm 127, which is David reflecting back on this situation and some others in his life. Number two, God is always at work behind the scenes with his hands of providence, either disciplining, which we saw in chapter 16, or delivering, which we see in this chapter. God is always at work guiding our lives. Number three, God's sovereignty over life should encourage me to expect God's help and make wise, courageous, and even risky choices as I follow King Jesus. He's sovereign. He will show up to help carry out his plans and his will. As long as we're living in line with it, he'll be there. Number four, God's answers to my prayers will often come in very ordinary ways. That's what we see in this chapter such as meeting the right people, being at the right place, at the right time, and even the very thoughts that come to our minds are how God answers prayers. And lastly, Jesus is the best example of God's hidden plan showing up to deliver God's people. I say that because in this chapter, we see God rescuing his chosen king, working behind the scenes to do that. But Jesus went into Jerusalem, and God didn't choose to rescue him. He died. But when he died, God's plan would he was died in our place for our sins to rescue us. That's God's sovereignty and God's wisdom, working behind the scenes to save his people. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chapter. Uh, the chapter where we get to see people working their wisdom and their plans in life, but you're in the background carrying out your plans for life. I ask that you would help us as your people to know what your plans are, to live in line with your plans courageously, but then expect that you'll be working in the background, supporting your work 
in your will for your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.